Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm Jared Krulish. I'll be I'll be your pastor this morning. Uh, so a uh, a couple introductory words. Uh, our brother already read for us uh, our sermon text from Second Samuel. Um, let's turn back to our gospel reading uh, from John 11. That's uh, John 11, 17 through 36. And uh, here we go. Why don't we, um, why don't, it's the gospel reading. Why don't we stand? I don't know. Do you really stand? Let's stand. This is John 11, 17 through 36. Not our sermon text, but important for our text. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village and was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So again, turning back to 2 Samuel chapter 17 as it's printed in your bulletin. And uh, the introductory words of that great lament of David uh, tell us what's happening here. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And then on is the poem as we heard earlier on. So I am uh, glad to be here with you this morning. Um, uh, by way of introduction, my wife Ari is here with our four children, uh, Olivia, Judah, 
Lilia, and Loxley is the little one on the end. And uh, it's our privilege to be here with you this morning. I've been in the presbytery for, I guess we're uh, rolling up on nine years. My wife's helping me out there. Uh, it's been nine years. I was five years in Tacoma and uh, another uh, four years here. And for about seven years of that time, I've been serving on the credentials committee of our presbytery with Eric. Uh, he's been on longer than I have, but somehow I ended up as the chairman of the committee. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know how that happened. I got suckered into it. Um, so I've had, uh, I've known Eric for a long time, and uh, it's really been my, my pleasure to know him. Um, he's been a huge encouragement to me, and, uh, and his thoughtfulness and wisdom, the way that he processes through things, has been a huge inspiration to me. And so uh, it's really my honor to be here with his congregation today, and I'm equally delighted to have him uh, ministering to my people up in Vancouver. Elegy. We live in a sanitized world. The grocery store, when you go in, offers antibacterial wipes so we can clean off the invisible germs from our carts and our hands and enter the store clean. Uh, I can't say that I'm particularly offended by this, uh, but when you do pe- see people go straight from the stall in the bathroom to their table at McDonald's, I do wish that there was a didn't wash hands alarm that would go off from over the bathroom. Those sanitary wipes didn't exist as I was ch- as a child. I'm not convinced that they w- would have made me healthier, but they would have put my mind at ease, perhaps. The modern aesthetic is described as clean, uncluttered. There's nowhere for dirt and germs to hide. You could clean a whole IKEA-designed living room with a single antibacterial wipe. Two swipes, top to bottom, the whole thing. It's just clean lines everywhere. Living in a house like that must be, it's like living on the surface of an iPad. You know, there's just one smooth thing. There's none of those Victorian designs, you know, with the intricate little weaving vines carved into the wood, the patterns that go around, because dust and dirt fill up all of those nooks and crannies over the years. We live in a safe world. Children used to jump on their bikes and ride around town. Now they have helmets, and they make their way safely down a well-known and well-mapped road. They don't ride their bikes around the block anymore in front of strangers, because now we know that the odds of a child being abducted are one in two. Not really. Not at all. But we act like that's the case, and so we keep them in eyesight. And this isn't a critique. We do the same thing with our own kids. I don't know how to escape it. I built forts with hammers and nails, but we get nervous about that. Hammers are sharp. Hammers are heavy. Nails are sharp. Tetanus is everywhere. So, we buy for our children prefabricated little homes with little cooking sets inside. Monkey bars used to be in every school uh, playground. Cooler heads prevailed, though, and instead of those dangerous metal monstrosities over cement, instead of broken arms, now we have play sets with nothing dangerous on them, including heights, risk, challenge, or interest. We live in a happy world. Now, don't get me wrong. 
clinical, Ill clinical depression and mental illness are real things, they do exist, and they ought to be treated by medicine. The other side of that is that at your first meeting with a counselor, if you tell them you're feeling a little down in the dumps, even if they're not a counselor, even if they're just a medical doctor with no psychological training, you say, I've been feeling down. They say, well, the first thing we need to get for you is medicine. Our culture expects that constant happiness is the norm, and any deviation from that should be clinically treated. It's a problem. We live in an immortal world. You have your choice of chicken, beef, or pork, but don't think of it as meat. Think of it as protein. A factory farm is okay, but hunting is gross because they take the animal home, they hang it up, and they butcher it themselves. Chicken is fine as long as it comes in nugget form. The process of your own aging can almost be infinitely suspended with enough sculpting, surgery, the right vitamins and supplements and bee pollen. It's all available to you at exorbitant prices. Until the point at which we find the actual cure for death, I don't think that will happen, but it would be a gold mine, and scientists are working very hard to find it. Until then, when you die, you can be blindly turned into an ash-filled urn, and you'll be remembered at a service which people refer to as, without any hint of embarrassment, a celebration of life. It is certainly not a funeral. And so when we read David's elegy, we have a problem with it. And our problem is that we live in a world that is so different from David's. David saw the little lambs of his flock being devoured by lions and bears. And when a lion devours a lamb, it grabs it by the throat and crushes its throat and breaks its neck and maybe shakes it to make sure that it's good and dead. And then it rips into it, spilling its entrails everywhere. To prevent this, David slung a stone at these lions and bears 20 or 30 feet away, knowing that if this animal were to pounce on me, I will be the next to be devoured like that little lamb. When David's family wanted to eat meat, they would take the animal and hold it by its head from behind, and using a knife, they would slit its throat, and the blood would pour out over their feet and their legs. When David was the age of a young man in high school, a freshman in high school maybe, 14 or 15, his brothers were off at war, and David himself actually fought and killed a man by cutting off his head with a large sword. He went on to slaughter hundreds of men, not with a push of a button or firing bullets into an airplane, but with a spear or sword. When David killed a Philistine or an Amalekite enemy, he watched the spear enter the man's throat. He watched the sword enter his chest. He watched the man's blood pour out onto the sand, and he watched him writhe in agony as his life left him slowly. I'm not trying to be graphic here, but there's a distance between us and David. And that distance is because David fought and killed and he went home at night covered in blood and had to wash it off.
David buried his friends. His friends fought for him. They died fighting for him. They died on his orders. He was a man of war and a man of bloodshed, and he lived in a world that was dirty, dangerous, lamentable, a world of imminent death. And because David was face-to-face with the end of life, this probably explains why he was so well-prepared to experience grief and to express his loss in this lament. We do not understand this. Death for us is rare and foreign and sanitized, but it does strike us. It strikes us all at one point or another. And when it does, we are usually ill-prepared. And so this text in front of us today, David's elegy, will prepare us for death. It will prepare us for our own deaths and for the death of those around us. It will teach us to mourn deeply and well, and it will bring before us the gospel of Jesus Christ, which prepares us for life again. The first thing that we should look at here is the depth of emotion that David experiences. Now, this is my first time here at Ascension, uh, speaking for Reformed Christians generally, and I knew when I would preach this for my own congregation, speaking to them directly, we tend to be somewhat unemotional. We're not called the frozen chosen randomly. Now, it probably has to do with our affirmation of the sovereignty of God and our making that really important, a central feature of our theology. I would, we would say that God has ordained all things that come to pass. Not a bird falls in the forest apart from the specific plan of God. No more than a soldier falls in the field without God knowing. And no doubt, the sovereignty of God should give us comfort. But what it should not do is take away the reason for that comfort. You can only be comforted If you're feeling distress in the first place, comfort does not produce distress. Comfort assumes distress. But a lot of times, Christians believe that the only way that they can be faithful Christians is if they skip the distress, skip the grief, and move directly to the comfort. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to see the body of Lazarus to raise him from the dead, he knew what he was going to do. Jesus could heal at a distance. We know that. So we know that Jesus, having been alerted of Lazarus' illness, could have sent informers home to find that Lazarus got well the moment that Jesus spoke the word. But instead, the Lord Jesus waits. He tarries. Where he is for two days, he does nothing. Now we know, of course, that he allowed Lazarus to die so that he could raise him up for the sake of his glory. Right? Jesus knew what he was doing when he let Lazarus die. He knew that he was going to Lazarus' burial site so that he could raise him up again. But we don't see Jesus grimly saying, well, God is in control of all things. He doesn't deny that there is something to be felt based on the fact that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is not like that. Jesus experienced He experiences and he expresses real human emotion. He weeps as he sees all the people mourning Lazarus. 
The same sort of emotion that David expresses in our text today. His shame that Israel's king has fallen in battle. And this, by the way, is after Saul and Jonathan have both been killed by the Philistines. And David learns about it. And so he's mourning for Jonathan and for Saul. His love for Jonathan. His admiration for their accomplishments. David's distress at their death. David expresses his love and his sorrow very openly. Everybody can hear him. Everyone sees that he is full of sorrow. He's not embarrassed. He's not hiding. He doesn't keep a stiff upper lip. We don't seem to do this anymore. Some of you might remember when someone in mourning would wear either all black or a black armband. If you've seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right, by uh, Jimmy Stewart when his father dies and that, you see he's got this black armband on over his coat. Sometimes old photos and movies will show up right up through the 70s, I think. I don't know how it stopped, but it's a shame that we don't have a public, visible acknowledgement of grief, a way to say, I am in mourning right now. Sometimes I wonder if we just have celebrities and YouTube videos do it for us. Celebrity dies, tweets go out, we like. Cultures change, I know this. And if you're from a particularly reserved culture or personality-wise, if you're just reserved in terms of outward expression, I'm not saying that you need to change your personality, right? I'm only saying that you are actually permitted to experience deep sorrow and encouraged to experience deep sorrow in the way that you experience that. As a creature made in the image of God, you should expect to feel that sorrow, and it needs to be expressed in some fashion or another. It is not ungodly or anti-Calvinist to do so. Now, if our sense of the sovereignty of God comes in through our mourning, it's it's not going to be the leading edge, right? Does that make sense? It's not going to be the first thing that we lead with. It's not to say that our theology doesn't play it out. It's not that sovereignty, uh, it's not sovereignty that is the leading edge in this lament. The leading edge of this lament is grace. Let me show this to you, okay? David is composing a poem toward two men that he cared for in very different ways and that treated him very differently. Jonathan was closer to David than a brother. Jonathan had, in fact, sacrificed his own rights to the crown of Israel in favor of David's, turning aside from the office that was by all rights his, recognizing that God had given it to David. This is not insignificant. This is a huge deal. Jonathan abdicated in favor of David. Saul, meanwhile, was typically trying to kill David. One would think that Jonathan and Saul would get separate laments, right? Jonathan, whom my soul loved, my brother, and Saul. Bye-bye. Right? Something really unexpected happens here. David doesn't rejoice at Saul's death. He doesn't preach him into heaven, okay, so to speak. But he focuses on the very human accomplishments of both Saul and Jonathan. He points out that Saul's shield 
wasn't anointed with oil in verse 21. That means, that's a, that means that it wasn't a decorative or symbolic shield. They didn't have stainless steel, right? Uh, and it means that uh, Saul wasn't hanging out, just polishing his fighting equipment, never using it. It means that he put it into battle, a heroic man. Saul was united to his son Jonathan in death, a fact that, if for nothing else, speaks very well of Saul. He calls the women of Israel to weep for Saul in verse 24, and he highlights Saul's strength in battle in verse 25. Now, you may remember, if you're familiar with with this story, that Saul did actually not end well. The night before his death, he was dining on a meal prepared by a witch. The witch herself should have been executed if Saul was doing his job. But in fact, Saul went to her for her necromantic services. But David shows Saul uh, that the one thing, David gives to Saul, really, the one thing that Saul never grasped in his life. He shows him grace. He doesn't fictionalize anything. He doesn't lie about him. He doesn't make it up. He simply tells the truth about Saul, highlighting certain important elements and leaving the shameful ones behind. This is something that every Christian can recognize. The Lord Jesus is, in fact, our judge. And the Bible teaches that on the last day, every believer will stand before the Lord and his life will be evaluated. His life will be judged based on our works. He, uh, he rewards us according to our works. He doesn't condemn us, right? We're justified by faith. We're made right with God by faith. But he does, in fact, say, this is your life. And he pronounces judgment on it. Well done. You're rewarded in such and such a way. Some have produced little and received little. Some produce much and receive more. But looking at, and, and sometimes that makes us afraid, right? We're like, not looking forward to that. I'm glad I'll be with the sheep, but I'd like for a little bit more there. But look at the grace that David shows to Saul. Would we expect that David's greater son, Jesus, would be less gracious than David? God is always being merciful to us. He takes our poorly done works and he calls them a blessing. He looks at our service to him, and it is his delight. He receives our distracted and mumbled praise as true praise to him. He's like, a, you know, your young children, they do, they do a drawing for you, right? And they say, I did a picture of you and me, and the legs aren't even, and the head is kind of oblong, and they forgot the neck, and there are no elbows, and the hands are only the length of the head, and there are six to ten fingers, And what do we do? We say, buddy, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I love it. And you're not just making that up, right? Why do you love it? It's not a portrait that everything, it's not accurate. Why do you love it? You love it because it was done for you in love. And it's, as art goes, it's nothing. No critic would say, excellent work here, five-year-old but you love it more than a professional painting, don't you? Because it was done for you in love. The professional, you just gave him money. 
God is always merciful with us. It was David, not Saul, who fought Goliath. But Saul was out on the battlefield, and so for that, David praises him. He doesn't rehearse his many obvious faults. He celebrates him at his very best. How much in life, then, do we also want to be the sort of people who are known for always seeing the best in other people, always speaking, speaking the best things about them? That is reflected here. For all the awful things he could have accurately said about Saul, he finds some good things. And as regards mourning, none of us wishes to remember the worst. David is helped to remember the very best qualities, even in one like Saul. If there was another side to this discussion, then, it would be the side of emotionalism. Not a a particular mark of Reformed churches, to be sure, but the open expression where someone just lets everything dump out, right? This is also not what we're seeing from David. David presents us with something that will be instructive to the emotive personality, but it will also help you if you think, I'm not an emotional person. All people are emotional people. There's nobody who's not an emotional person. You're made in the image of God, and God is a God who feels, a God who can somehow, in Scripture's words, regret, a Holy Spirit who is grieved, a Savior who weeps. You cannot be an unemotional person. You can simply subvert your own humanity. Ironically, the people who are unemotional people, especially as they think of the sovereignty of God, they're actually more animalistic than anything. A reptile does not cry when its mother dies. So look at this. Look at our text. David's grief is expressed formally and productively. David's grief found, grief found solace in the discipline of writing poetry, a song to be taught by others. Poetry or art forms require structure. This isn't Hebrew free verse. This requires searching for the right metaphors, the hunt for the word that will express just what needs to be said with an economy of words. We're not much of poets these days, but have you noticed that when funerals come around, it is remarkable how many poems actually get written, right? People who paid no attention in English class 25 years ago suddenly feel the need to write poems, right? And they come out with, I haven't written a poem for 25 years, but here we go. And it's really a good impulse. Grief finds relief when channeled into formal expression. Water moves swifter when it's channeled through a narrow stream. The narrower the stream, the faster the water moves. Grief kind of moves, grief seems to me to move like water. And when it's unstructured, it's just a flood and it overwhelms everything. Building a channel by putting walls in certain places, we allow it to move more swiftly and more effectively. We can move it where we need it to go. The same thing, the rules of poetry apply in many places. The basic rules of music or even cooking, right? You don't cook informally. There's, there's a formality to cooking. The water must be at a certain temperature. The meat must be heated to a certain degree. Lament is work. 
We all feel better when we have something that our work has produced. You well know the sense of working all day and yet feeling at the end of the day that nothing has gotten accomplished. Any of you who are moms or have been moms have probably experienced this. You're like, I worked all day to get the house clean, to take care of the kids and everything. And at the end of the day, the house and the children are dirty and uh, we're eating leftovers. What happened? This is common to everybody. Sorrow experiences that same frustration. And the creation of sorrow relieves that. You can look at the thing you created whether it's a photo collage or a flower arrangement or a poem or a cake, you can look at it and say, this is my grief. This is my sorrow. I have produced something with my tears. And then, like all poems, David's elegy comes to an end. And here again, our lament will follow the patterns that we have established. And in the process of writing a story or a memoir or a poem or a design, whatever it is you might do, The process of doing so has a beginning and a middle and an end, and so too must grief. Now, I'm very hesitant to say that you can get over the passing of someone in a certain amount of time. I don't know what that time could be. Like Job, there's certainly a time to sit and be silent and do nothing and just live with the grief. But I also know that contrary to what you might hear otherwise, grieving does need to come to an end. Uh, my family friend of my, of my folks, uh, a woman effectively ended her marriage because her father died, and she just found herself unable to go on. And for five years, she kept just sitting. If, if grief is like water, she was in a stagnant bog. The water didn't move anywhere. It just stayed there and became more and more filthy, and it affected everyone around her. God has made you as a person who is essential to the roles in which he has placed you. The children still need their mother and father. The husband still needs his wife. The work that we do unto the Lord, our particular vocations, are still our calling. So I don't dare to tell you how long is too long, but I can tell you that poems finish, the casserole goes on the table and is eaten, and man goes to his eternal home. And while we are always marked by the sorrows of this life, the paralyzing, numbing sorrows that come from loss are eventually put to rest, which is sometimes difficult to do. And it is almost offensive, I understand, to suggest that it must come to an end, but indeed, it must. And lastly, David's lament is concerned with those around him. David is not unaware that there are those in Israel who will mourn with him, and he knows that there are those outside Israel who will rejoice. So for both of these groups, David has written a lamentation. There in verse 18, it is to be taught to everyone in Judah. Now this has a twofold purpose. The first, Judah becomes a representative tribe for all of Israel, as David's greater son Jesus would do much later. While Saul opposed Judah, Judah would praise Saul on behalf of all of Israel, giving all 12 tribes a voice. But the second reason for the song is that he wanted to make sure that the news of Saul's death isn't news of joy to the Philistines, but dread. I was surprised to learn that the war cry in the Texas War for Independence was not simply 
remember the Alamo. You've heard that before. But there was another cry that day that didn't make it into the story of Davy Crockett. (coughs) I had never heard of Colonel James Fannin of the Texas Rebel Army. He took his 400-man force on a 30-mile retreat to Victoria for a better defense. Unfortunately, Colonel Fannin delayed, and he was set upon by the Mexican Army with a force of 1,400. They put up a decent resistance, but they they were surrounded and vastly outnumbered, and then they surrendered, and they were marched back to Goliad. They were held there, the city, I suppose, town of Goliad. Now, one of the basic ideas of surrender is that when you surrender to the enemy, you're saying, look, we understand that you're going to win. We see that. But we'll stop killing you so that you don't experience any more losses, and you will treat us decently after we surrender, uh, saving our lives and allowing us to, uh, to survive. If you're just going to die, right, if they're just going to kill you, why surrender? Make them pay. As, as best you can. So they surrendered, and their surrender was received. However, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana had ordered that all prisoners were to be considered as rebels and pirates and subsequently executed. 360 prisoners were marched out and then shot and stabbed to death on Palm Sunday of 1836. I say 360 because there was a Mexican colonel who was outraged that that, uh, soldiers received in surrender would be executed. And so he managed to save the lives of some by convincing the commanding officer that they were doctors and other necessary personnel. Now Santa Ana had thought that by treating the rebel Texans with a ruthless and hard hand, he would scare the other Texans into submission. But as they say, don't mess with Texas. Rather than scare them off, his cruelty proved to be his undoing. As men heard about this, and they joined the Texas Army in droves. Less than a month later, Sam Houston prepared his men to face Santa Ana's army at the Battle of San Jacinto. And he called out to them, remember the Alamo, the Alamo! And the men thundered back to him, remember Goliad. 900 Texas rebels suffered 11 fatalities that day. Santa Ana brought 1,300 Mexicans. 650 were killed in one of history's most lopsided battles. David exalts Saul so that the tribe of Judah will lead the nation in mourning, and so that Israel will be focused on resolve. Don't celebrate yet, Philistia. Your judgment is coming. In the midst of death, mourning the ones you have loved, it feels like death has the upper hand. It feels like the penalty for sin has won the day. And it certainly looked that day when the nails were driven through the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus, didn't it? A man whose most violent moment in his whole life was tossing over a table and freeing some goats. That man met the most violent death 
imaginable. The devil had entered Judas to betray the Lord over to the Romans. But that was the enemy's terrible mistake. Death still conveys a great sadness, a loss, and an emptiness. It is the original punishment of the original sin. But the way of death is now, in fact, our entrance into life eternal. Our Lord Jesus has gone there before us, moving not only through the shadow of death, but onward through the dark valley, all the way to that great day of feasting, the resurrection of the body and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as we mourn for those we lose, we ought to mourn like David, with real human emotion, showing grace, seeking to find forms and patterns of grief, disciplining ourselves to grie- to both to grieve and to direct our grief. But remember always that our lament will speak to fellow believers and skeptics alike, that we grieve with hope, knowing that death is not the final word, but the last word is the resurrection, and that there will soon be a glorious day in which every tear is wiped away. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He has gone before us in death. He has gone before us in life. And where he goes, we too will follow. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Our Holy Father, let us commit these words to heart, those words that you have spoken to us this morning. Let the preacher fade away and the message be true. That you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to go before us so that his death stands for us and his life becomes ours. Thank you, our Father, that you have given us new life in Christ. Thank you that we will experience by faith that resurrection from the dead. Thank you that we are people who mourn as those with hope. Amen.